Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is the conversation of the day on uh, for Global Wall Street, and it's on the repo market. We flew him in nice specifically transition. here. It's good. Yeah, I'm <laughs> Right into the repo. John, you've been following this more than I have with the real yield and all, but the real repo is like a serious issue, isn't it? So we bring Jerome Schneider in so he yeah. can explain PIMCO had a short-term portfolio management of the short-term fund over at PIMCO. Great to see you, Jerome. Thanks very much. Good to Walk be here. Walk us through the difficulties. Well, I, I think the theme that you actually outlined, the politics of the world, it actually transcends to the repo market. You have two things. One, volatility. Thank you for making the transition for us. <laughs> Try my best here. Uh, one, one, uh, one, volatility and two, fragility. And, and I think, you know, as, as you sort of see where central bank policy has evolved to over the past two years, one of more, a more tighter, a tighter uh, monetary policy, one that we see um, subtle cracks in the liquidity of the system. Clearly, the Fed and other central banks remain more vigilant in terms of how thinking about um, monetary policy should be should be um, effectively effectuated. Um, that effectively has been done through open market operations, really a, uh, a more active approach into making sure that there isn't a tighter liquidity environment and it doesn't necessarily affect monetary policy normalization, slight normalization, I'll say. So what we've seen is effectively higher repo rates in September and October really be met with um, higher liquidity conditions brought on by the Fed. And more importantly, we are now in a place where the Fed is you know, all hands on deck providing that liquidity that's needed in the marketplace to the tune of about $600 billion through asset purchases like T-bills as well as open market operations. And for what it, what it practically means for investors is the following. One, uh, that we should be recognizing that volatility is in the marketplace and places that it has been removed over the past decade we should be more comfortable with. So expect some volatility in repo rates. And all that simply means is a natural recalibration or acknowledgement that the cost of capital changes. As as, as investors, cost of capital changes all the time. Why shouldn't we expect it to be that way in the basic funding markets that are trillions of dollars every day? That's one takeaway. There's another takeaway too, which is if there is volatility, however small or however normal, the Fed's going to step in and try to dampen it. And they're going to dampen it with $600 billion uh, of asset purchases. And that this is what is ultimately driving the increase in risk appetite right now. Because when you strip away volatility, you get more flows into a a lot of quantitative strategies, et cetera. How much is that fueling the uh, the rally right now in risk assets? So it goes hand in hand with with the comment I just made a moment ago. The repo rates are simply a real-time barometer of the cost of capital. And understanding how that translates to risk appetite is a subtle but important mechanism here, not only for central bankers, but for investors alike. So as we see this volatility um, be be subdued, we saw risk appetite over the past decade really become much more exacerbated. On a go-forward basis, what we are ultimately going to see is higher cost of funding, both in nominal terms and relative terms. So the appetite, the risk appetite, shouldn't be as great as it once was. Things that should drive risk appetite are growth trajectories, maybe uh, growth trajectories and monetary policy that you know is going to be adjusting to higher inflation, okay. et cetera, over those points That's in time. That's great math, Guy. But the truth is a lot of people look at this as a moral imperative. It's not good that the Fed has a bigger balance sheet. Right. Where should the Fed balance sheet be? Is it... Do you, do you perceive it as normal? Is it inflated? Is everybody worried about the wrong thing? Well, you need to separate two things. One, 
what has currently happened with regard to excess reserves um, doesn't necessarily mean it's quantitative easing. So there, that's a big policy debate. It's a debate right. within the Fed. It's okay, a debate, obviously, fair. within that. But if you can separate that for the moment, the reality is, is that we have to change liquidity conditions. And that's really what the Fed is addressing here, is the tighter liquidity conditions that have been brought on by a mismatch in supply and demand, out supply of, of funding okay, and demand Out of, of regulation changes 10 years ago. I get all that. I've read all that. Is it immoral that the balance sheet is where it is? No. And the, and the reality is, is think of the balance sheet as another lever to pull, just like rate policy was for decades. So changes it's in- It's like, John, it's on the weekend. Like the checkbook, dad's checkbook is another lever to pull. Yeah, we all I have think that. A lot of people you know. wish that dad's checkbook looked a little something like the Fed balance sheet. Um, Jerome, just to round this up, when you sit on the committee meetings at PIMCO at the moment, and you explain this to the portfolio managers as what is happening at repo, and they turn around to you potentially and say something like, well, this looks like the QE trade again. The market is trading as if this is QE again. What's that discussion sound like at PIMCO at the moment? Yeah, two things. One, I think that we recognize the fact that this is not 2008 when we talk about the repo markets. It's not a, it's not a counterparty credit environment. It's not a situation where there's a breakage in the system. This is simply a transmission a, a, a system, a problem with a transmission mechanism, meaning that funding yeah. isn't getting to the right places, leading to exacerbated repo rates. What does that mean? It ultimately means that levered players, whether you're buying treasuries at a hedge fund or buying credit and levering it up, means that you have to be adjusting for those higher cost of funding. And right. as a result, you're expectations for those levered returns has to go down. Mm -hmm. So 2020 is going to be probably met with more subdued opportunities and, and a little bit worse risk adjusted returns simply because of this funding dynamic. Or by Apple stock. Okay. Uh, th Jerome, thank you so much. Jerome Schneider with us. Jerome, thank you. Good to see you. Really, really good. An important conversation. And I thank Ira Jersey and our team at Bloomberg for uh, trying to let me almost keep up with Jerome. Keo Jin joins us. She's one of the good thinkers at the London School of Economics about international economics and particularly the ramifications into the financial system. Keo, you're not within market economics. If you were to write a 20-page kickoff essay for 2020, what would you focus on if you were out of academics and in the market economics world? I would focus on the fact that the trade tensions being uh, eased so far will raise business sentiment and increase uh, investment. So that is all good news for both China, U.S., but also around the world. As we have seen, there's been a divergence between business sentiment and consumer sentiment, which leads us to think that the trade war has really taken a toll on business and manufacturing investment. I would also focus on uh, whether... Uh, lowering and lowering interest rates would actually be effective in terms of creating the uh, demand and making up for the deficit in demand, which we're seeing industrialized uh, economies. And I would question the effective uh, monetary policy to make that happen. How much does the trade truce really remove uncertainty for businesses? I think that it will, um, it sets a good tone uh, for an easing U.S.-China relations for the next uh, foreseeable uh, future. Uh, business will probably feel that they can start investing and, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, setting up their production and supply chains again. And I do think that there will be uh, an yeah. impact just as we've seen uh, that uh, business sentiment dramatically declined after the trade right. increased. 
You wrote four years ago an important essay in the American Economic Review, Credit Constraints and Growth in the Global Economy. What has business investment done in this trade war? Um, well, uh, credit constraint has been uh, a very big uh, problem for China, uh, but the opposite problem uh, for the U.S. Uh, the Chinese government uh, understands the importance of getting more liquidity and credit into the productive private sector. But in the West, we're facing a problem where there's too much liquidity at very low interest rates, and you're not ejecting the firms that should be ousted by the market already. Professor, let's talk about this deal that's on the table. We have an accord. It hasn't been signed. It hasn't been implemented. And one of the promises of it is 40 to $50 billion a year in agricultural commodities. How does China reach that kind of level every year? Importing agricultural goods and as much as that uh, from the part of the Chinese is not uh, a big uh, major hurdle because uh, Chinese are actually having an increase in demand for good high-quality agricultural products as its population uh, increases its prosperity and their demand. So uh, this is very complementary trade. Uh, China needs that from the U.S., U.S. supplies it, and so this is actually not difficult to implement and meet. I would say that this is the easy part. Not difficult to implement. Uh, a lot of people disagree. What are they getting wrong? They probably disagree on the fact that China can meet some of the other uh, intellectual property protection uh, standards and uh, what is promised there. I happen to think that uh, this is actually completely consistent with China's long-term goal of pushing itself into an innovative uh, economy. Protecting IP is actually central to its own domestic economy, not just foreign businesses. You wrote an important essay in the Financial Times two cups of coffee ago, and you didn't mince words, Professor. You said all this trade war stuff is a strategic gift for China. How gifty was the gift three days ago with phase one? Uh, I would see a truth as a gift, um, but Trump, President Trump is by no means China's worst nightmare. This is pushing What's China their worst to nightmare? What's more. their worst nightmare? Uh, the, uh, the worst nightmare is somebody who doesn't want to talk about deals. And it would be sell. It would be uh, negotiating by, by based on what Chinese can buy. Uh, somebody who will be pressing on human rights and uh, events in Hong Kong, uh, things like that. This is actually a, yeah. a business deal. And um, yes, that's fine, Kujin. Thank you so much, Professor of Economics at London School of Economics, out of a shop uh, on the Charles River in Cambridge as well. Callum Pickering joins us on the phone out of the United Kingdom, senior economist at Berenberg. Callum, walk us through your thoughts and what you're telling clients off the back of the latest move from the Prime Minister. Uh, we think this is an opening gambit. Boris Johnson is partly trying to learn the lessons of his predecessor, <laughs> Theresa May, that um, did not set strict enough discipline among her negotiators when she entered the first talks with the EU. Our bet is that if push comes to shove, with his big majority, Johnson will look for a political fudge to give himself a few more months to negotiate rather than face the um, technical hard right. at the end of 2020. And the thing to keep in mind is here, this is positioning for a negotiation which will last 
at least 11 months, and there is nothing, strictly legally speaking, that can pre-commit the government to either do or to prevent the government from right. doing something some 12 months down the line. Parliament is sovereign. It can always change its mind. So this is, right. mind. This is about intent rather than certainty. Give us a backdrop in Europe right now. You're with Berenberg Bank with all their relationships in Europe right now. Let's get a recession update. Has Europe escaped recession? <clears throat> Parts of core Europe have been stagnating slash slightly shrinking over the course of 2019, but it's a very focused problem. It's the global industrial recession. It's the global trade recession, right. which is hitting export-oriented uh, okay. Europe. This is mainly due to political uncertainty, the U.S.-China trade issues. Yeah. Brexit. The bet for next year is if the f- risks go the right way, that is no escalation on trade, no hard Brexit, then global trade, global industrial production can recover. And on the back of that, Europe will see better times. Karen, just how bad is it in Europe at the moment? The Bundesbank president better that many people listening yeah. are familiar with, Jens Weidmann said recently that Germany shouldn't obsess about its fiscal ru- rules. Jens Weidmann even sounded supportive of loose monetary policy. Now, if Jens Weidmann, the hawk of the European Central Bank, is sounding almost dovish, Callum, it makes me wonder just how difficult things are on the continent. It is bad for industrial producers. It is bad for exporters. But so far, aggregate employment and the services, domestic-oriented parts of the European economy are holding up okay. The fear is that if the uh, downturn in trade is protracted into 2020. Eventually, you will see rising unemployment, which will have knock-on effects for the domestic parts of the economy. The ECB does not have the firepower to um, start a recovery in Europe. That's where fiscal policy comes in. And given that some parts of Europe are still, still pretty tight on fiscal policy. They don't have much headway. It's better to move early rather than later. So these are preemptive, encouraging measures rather than fully-fledged panic in Europe. Callum, there's a concern about the industrial sector. So far uh, within Europe, you haven't seen the recession in the industrials really bleed into services as much as people were fearing. And yet uh, today there was a story that European car sales are poised uh, for another negative year. And this comes even with comps that are pretty easy to beat from last year. How concerned should we be about that? We should be concerned that if the industrial sector does not recover within, say, three to six months, you will start to see rising unemployment that could then have significant negative effects on consumption and services, and that would then risk a kind of slow-motion recession across Europe. Not our base case, but it is the risk to watch. The reason why we have not yet seen a significant bleeding is because actually industrial producers see a recovery on the horizon. They don't think there are fundamental economic problems. They see political risks, and they bet that eventually they'll go away, and hence they hold on to their staff. And now for the dumb question of the day. How can you have common recovery with negative interest rates? I looked at the x-axis of Swiss 20-year negative interest rates today. I mean, it's long in the tooth, to say the least. I mean, how can you have recovery with the artificiality of negative interest rates? Well, 
it's a good question. You could say that the low bond yields across continental Europe, especially in core eurozone, is the market telling the Europeans two things. First, we don't expect much in terms of growth and inflation for a very long time. And second, we're happy to lend you money. So there seems to be almost a no-brainer argument that Europe should use fiscal policy to stimulate growth. But there are some coordination problems across Europe. There are some political challenges that first need to be overcome before you would see a fiscal stimulus in a major way, with the exception of the UK, where you will get a fiscal stimulus over the next two years. Callum, let's get Tom excited. Let's talk Sweden. The world's oldest central bank meets December 19th. And this is why it's interesting. There is a real chance that we have one of the first central banks that has a negative interest rate looking to abandon it and potentially abandon it because it believes that it no longer works, it's no longer effective, perhaps even counterproductive. Callum, how important would that case study be going into 2020? Well, Sweden is an interesting economy from a European perspective because it tends to be... um one of the first signs of where things are going. If things get bad, Sweden usually tilts down first. When things are improving, Sweden usually improves. It's an advanced economy. It's got well-run markets. So the Europeans will be looking to Sweden if indeed we get a removal of the negative rates to see how this experiment plays out. We have long argued that actually it doesn't make much sense to penalize banks for dumping their cash at the ECB when in fact they are lending. The problem in Europe is credit demand, not credit supply. So there is a good argument actually to uh, revise our view about negative rates and Sweden may provide a good example for the next 12 months to see where we get uh, this story developing in Europe. Tom, we know that Sweden is the central bank that you get most excited about, but if you could it say the second second uh, central bank that you get most excited about, which would it be? It'd be more Sweden. I mean, what they did in 1992 was absolutely historic and original. They're original thinkers. And to, to, to everybody else's benefit, they're tangential to a lot of what's going on, so they can afford yep. to be fearless. Do you know what they I loved about that? Lisa, th- Lisa thought I was joking. Lisa thought I was joking. No, I mean, what I, I, they did well, I mean, in 1992 was extraordinary. People still talk about it, I, I but just, they have the luxury of being, right, Kalen? They have I the luxury mean, of being courageous? That's right. And, and, and the thing we should be focusing on is uh, credit flows over the next 12 months, if indeed uh, Sweden removes the negative rate. Let's look at bank okay. stability. Let's look at credit flows. If the banks are doing fine right. and credit but, is still flowing into the economy, then perhaps actually okay. there's an argument to revise our thought about negative rates. Okay, Caleb, i got no time left. Can they escape from negative interest rates and smooth curves and stability, or will there be jump conditions? Uh, markets are typically volatile when in a new environment, but eventually they adjust. Eventually. So maybe we get a volatility and then things smooth out. He learned that from Mickey Levy. Callum, thank eventually. you. Eventually. Callum, Callum that was great. Senior economist at Berenberg. John, I really want to focus two days ahead to December 20, where there's a raft of economic data, adjustments to GDP, but personal income, personal spending, the PCE numbers, and Michigan sentiment. It's a big day. Big day today. We really to close out the week. It sets maybe where we are in two percent GDP. Lindsay Piegza with us now with Stiefel, and she's uh, looking at uh, Y equals C plus G plus uh, NX plus whatever it is I. Lindsay, when I look at the economic data. And I try to get above 2%. Are we modeling 2% right now? Or are we actually modeling better? 
Well, I think the Fed is certainly modeling 2%. They've been very clear that that is the new target for the economy. 2%, 2% growth. 2, well, as well as 2% inflation. The Fed is very optimistic that price pressure yeah. will begin to revert back to 2%. Where are we on GDP right now? Where what, What's the handle you're having into Q1, Q2? I think the first quarter and the second quarter is going to show a noticeable slowdown from the Fed's optimistic forecast. I do think that business investment will continue to trend very weak. We've seen manufacturing lose a significant amount of momentum. And even the consumer, albeit in positive territory, has begun to show increased volatility on a month-to-month basis. So it's going to be increasingly difficult for the consumer to continue to shoulder the economy alone without support from other uh, from some of these other key sectors. So Dallas Fed President uh, Robert Kaplan was speaking in a uh, at an event today in New York, and he was saying uh, that we can run a tighter labor force without pricing pressure. And this just sort of goes to the heart of a conundrum of why we haven't seen faster wage growth. What's your take on that? Do you think that the Fed is right, uh, that all we need is a much tighter labor market, and then we'll start to see wages go up uh, more meaningfully? I do think we need to see a tighter labor market. I I think the metrics that we're using right now don't necessarily show the true level of joblessness in the economy. And, of course, we've heard this from a number of Fed officials, including Kashkari out of Minneapolis, who's essentially said that the civilian unemployment rate is worthless. It, It doesn't accurately capture what we're seeing out in the labor market. Right now, when we talk about a sub 4% unemployment rate and the minimal amount of slack that that implies in the labor market, we should easily be talking about three and a half, four, maybe four percent wage gains. And so it's very difficult to reconcile the lack of wage pressures with such a low level of unemployment, meaning yeah. that maybe we're not accurately capturing again, that level of joblessness out in the U.S. labor market. So, Lindsay, the Federal Reserve has undertaken a monetary policy review. Do you get the feeling that before it's even concluded that it's already part of the decision-making process on the FOMC? Well, I do, I do think that they're very acutely aware of the fact that they're not doing a, a fantastic job in terms of forecasting inflation. As we know, the Fed has predicted 2% inflation but fallen short of that objective for the better part of the past decade. That being said, even with a review, it remains to be seen whether or not there really is an appetite among Fed officials for any type of meaningful change to policy uh, strategy, given that we have had such a, a very low success rate, and yet there hasn't been any change thus far. So I do understand that they're undergoing a review, but it remains to be seen whether or not that will actually result in meaningful uh, change. Lindsay, thank you so much for the brief. Lindsay uh, Piggs uh, with Stiefel uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.